Good morning, everyone. Thank you for welcoming us again into your home. Praise the Lord. This is the day the Lord has made. It's the Lord's Day, a day when we gather with God's people. It was great to have many of you joining us for our Zoom prayer meeting uh, on the National Day of Prayer yesterday. Awesome. We're going to plan to do some more things like that. It was really great to see a lot of you, to be praying together. I want to encourage you to continue to stay connected. You know, reach out, pick up that phone, make sure your friends and loved ones are doing well. Um, there are some people that aren't connected, aren't, aren't online yet. So make sure that um, as the body of Christ, we're reaching out to one another. While you're doing that, I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, we're going through some psalms for a time like this as we continue to pray for one another during the coronavirus. Last week we looked at Psalm 42 and 43 and we talked about depression and hoping in God. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 139. And you know, it was interesting that as the early church came to know the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, they began to then go back and read the psalms through this Christ-centered lens. They began to read the psalms through the gospel. And in fact, really, the psalms were designed by the Lord to point us to Christ and to sing these great truths of the gospel. So my sermon this morning is called The God Who Searches Us. The God Who Searches Us. God's greatness is is inscrutable. We'll never fully know him. And one of the joys of being a Christian is the Bible says in Colossians 1, we are increasing in the knowledge of God. And so the Bible tells us God is love, God is light. But this morning we're going to talk about the God who searches us. Psalm 139 verse 1 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And then the psalm is sandwiched at the end in verse 23, and it says again, Search me, O God, and know me. So let's pray together, and then we'll talk about the God who searches us. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit will bless us as Christian brothers and sisters. We need to hear from your word. We need encouragement. We need to know you better. We need to feed on the gospel, and and on the Lord Jesus. So may your word be our bread. May it be life to us. We cannot live by bread alone. As your people, we are gathered, and we all need to hear something, some word of reproof, encouragement, comfort, exhortation, and edification. So may your word bear much rich and lasting fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. And we're going to see here that as David thought about God, he found that the God who searches us knows us better than ourselves and still loves us. The God who searches us knows us better than himself, better than ourselves, and still loves us. So I hope you have a pen. You're going to take some notes. I'm going to share a lot of verses. We're going to drink from the fountain of Scripture and grow together. But I want you to think with me for a moment. When you woke up this morning, do you remember the first word that came out of your mouth? Do you remember the sixth word that came out of your mouth? David is astounded with how well God knows him and yet still loves him. Let's read together verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and you've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. The God who searches us knows us. You know, there's something wonderful about human relationships because as you interact with someone, you get to know them better. And as you get to know someone better, they get to know you better and we'll use a term, you know, they really get me. Sometimes it's fun. My wife and I will will say something at the same time or I'll say, I know what you're thinking. She'll tell me she knows what I'm thinking. And yet, look at this amazing description of how deeply God knows us. And you know, there are parts of us that nobody knows because we don't want them to know. In fact, I love how Tim Keller says, to be loved and not known is shallow, to sort of put up a facade. But the ultimate is to be fully known and still loved. And I think that the thing that struck me here is to, to think that God knows me even better than myself, and yet he still loves me. That's staggering. As David thought about how deeply God knows about him, he said, this knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, it's wonderful to think about. And so I want you to think about this, that knowing the, the thoughts that go on in your heart, the, the, the jealousy, the pride, sometimes the hatred. As Jesus said, out of our heart proceeds murder and lust and deceit. Inside of us, there's unlimited ugliness apart from the gospel. And yet, God knows all about that and still completely loves us. I hope that's encouraging to you. It reminds me of Ephesians 2. I want you to write down Ephesians 2. It's good to remember who we would be without Christ. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 says this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You formerly walked according to the the course of this world, you know, the way that the world just leaves God out. You were indulging the desires of the flesh and even of the mind, those fantasies. You were energized by, by the, the, the prince of the power of the air, that spirit that works in, in disobedience. And in fact, Ephesians 2 says, and we were children deserving God's wrath. And you go, wow, oh man, that's, that's hideous. And yet, the next verse says this, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he he made us alive together with Christ. And so, we want to celebrate this morning that God, who searches us and knows us better than we know ourselves, he still loves you. So, whatever's going, going on in your life, your mind, whatever failures, 
Satan's constantly reminding us how evil we are. I want you to know as a child of God, he still loves you. And with David, we can say, Lord, that knowledge is too wonderful for me. But there's a second thing I want us to note here. And that is this, that the God who searches us is permanently present with us. In verses 7 through 12, we're going to see this staggering reality that God is always with us. And there's a certain sense here where I want to nuance this to help you to understand that this is not really exactly the same for an unbeliever. The Bible tells us that unbelievers are separated from God. They're disconnected. But read this through the lens of the gospel. As David thought about God, he said, Lord, in verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascended up to heaven, you're up there. If I make my bed down in Sheol, the, 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 the underworld, the, the world of departed spirits, you're there. If David could, 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 could mount up with wings like a bird, if I, if I take the wings of the dawn, if David were to fly to the other side of the ocean, he says, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Look at that tenderness of God being with us. And then David considers how darkness is, is a place of uncertainty and, 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 and seeming separation from God. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to thee. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. Isn't that interesting? I mean, think about being in a room with no windows. Makes no difference to God. Turn the lights off. Turn the lights on. He doesn't need night vision goggles. He is there with us. Intimately present with us. And you know, there's an interesting, interesting aspect here concerning the role of the Spirit. You see, this person of the, of the triune Godhead, it's not like he wasn't on the earth in the Old Testament. When God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis verse 2 says the Spirit of God was, was hovering over the surface of the earth. And so the Spirit of God is omnipresent. He's always been everywhere on the earth, even in the Old Testament. Sometimes Christians misunderstand the presence of the Spirit of God. When Jesus said, I will send my Spirit, it's not like the Holy Spirit was up in heaven like the little mermaid saying, someday I'll be part of your world. He's always been present on earth. But the fascinating truth of the new covenant is whereas David could contemplate the, the, the omnipresence of the Spirit, every believer today actually enjoys the intimate indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has permanently come to seal us until the day of redemption. He has come not only to indwell us, but to manifest the presence of Jesus to us. And so as you think about this great truth, we can be reminded that this God who searches us, no matter where I am, no matter what I'm going through, he's permanently 
present with me. Now the hard thing is, I don't always feel him. And this is where I grip these verses by faith. As we go through this coronavirus, it might feel like God has left us. But David tells us in verse 10, Your hand is leading me. Your right hand has laid hold of me. Let me remind you, Hebrews 13.5 says this, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. I mean, many people are losing a lot right now with the coronavirus. But the Bible says, be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You see, our God is so good to us. He searches us and he's with us. Way back in Genesis, God said to Jacob, Behold, I'm with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Samuel said in 1 Samuel 12, The Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. The Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. And so as you, as you and I face this coronavirus, just remember the Lord is with you. Jesus said, Lord, I'm with you always. Maybe you can write down Isaiah 41.10. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But then David tells us something extraordinary about God, beginning in verse 13. He tells us that the God who searches us has uniquely conceived of us. The God who searches us has uniquely conceived of us. You see, this is a staggering thought. Before God even spoke the world into space, he conceived of you in his mind. You know how when we, when we are looking at a cartoon, it'll have that little bubble above someone's head. This is, this is really interesting. Before God even created the earth, in his mind, he conceived you. Before he created you, he conceived you. He thought and planned and purposed uniquely to create you in his image. And as a child of God, there are extraordinary blessings that come out of this. And so as we read verses 13 through 18, we're going to notice how this God who uniquely conceived of us, he, he chose us, created us, calls us, and keeps us. So, so look with me in verse 13. As David thought back, and, and think about what we know now about biology and, and, and sonograms and how, how we understand that life begins in the womb. It doesn't begin with a child's born. David says in verse 13, you formed me in my inward parts. Or I'm sorry, you form my inward parts. So, so he starts out by thinking about God's creation of him. So God conceived, he had an idea, and now in the womb of his mother, he began to weave David together in his mother's womb. That, that's what God did with you as, as he took sinew and, and tissue and, and flesh and DNA as he began to skillfully shape you. And over that nine-month period of gestation, he was carefully putting you together. As David thought about this, he said, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Now, I want to pause here as, as you think about this. You, like a fingerprint and like a snowflake, are unique. There is something that you reflect in the image of God that no one else will ever be able to reflect quite the same way because God has uniquely formed you. But one of the things that we wrestle with is that all of us have things about ourselves that we don't like. Things about our appearance, things about our personality. There are things that we sometimes are are tempted to covet someone else. Why can't I be taller? Why can't I be shorter? Why can't I be faster? Why can't I be smarter? Why can't I have hair? Why can't I have blue eyes? Why can't I be stronger? Why can't I be funny? And one of the things I want you to think about is that God didn't make any mistakes when he fashioned you. And while all of us have imperfections, all of us have things about ourselves, both outwardly and inwardly, that we might not like, please understand that in the greater purpose of God, these were all designed perfectly. God didn't make junk. God didn't make any mistakes. Even when people are born with deformities and deficiencies, while from a human standpoint, we think to ourselves, what, what, what? But that's not how God works. Everything is carefully designed by God. And I actually want you to do something. Here's an exercise. The next time you start getting down on yourself for things that you don't like about yourself, rather than have resentment towards God, take a moment and say, God, I don't know why I have this weakness, but I actually want to thank you for it because it keeps me depending on you. Help me to turn my problems into praise. Help me not to be dissatisfied and always be wishing that I was someone else. But help me to understand that even if I'm teased, even if I have things that others find offensive, that if that's the the way that you created me, help me to accept myself. Especially younger people, I want to encourage you, all of us, it is a terrible idea to compare yourself to others. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, those who compare themselves with others are not wise. Our culture blasts before us in social media and television, beautiful people, perfect figures, funny and, and, and powerful. Forget about that. Each person is precious in the sight of God, created uniquely in the sight of God. And therefore, we need to love people and understand that God looks on the heart not on the appearance. And I hope that you can maybe even memorize these wonderful verses. Lord, wonderful are your works and that my soul knows well. My daughter is teaching my children, her children to, to memorize verse 14. And my grandson the other day, Everett, they were having dinner and, and he's learning this verse, wonderful are your works and that my soul knows right well. It's a beautiful thing to put scripture in the hearts of children. He looks over at his mom and he says, Mom, that was a really good dinner and that my soul knows right well. Let's have our children learning the scriptures. Let them them ingest the word of God into their minds and hearts. And as parents, let's be an example. But notice, as David reflects on God creating him, he says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret 
and I was skillfully wrought or created in the depths of the earth as God formed us in the womb. But then he says this. He says in verse 16, Lord, your eyes, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Like a great potter, you looked at the clay and you saw how you would shape me. But then look carefully at verse 16. He says, in your book, they were all written. What, 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 what was written? The days that were ordained for me, when as yet there were none of them. Now, wait a minute. Just stop and think about that. God, before he even created you, knew exactly how many days you and I would live on this earth. As a Christian, I don't have to be afraid to die. I don't have to worry that I'm going to die somehow at the wrong time because God has already planned and written in a book the days that are ordained for me. And worrying or being fearful isn't going to add one day to my life. God has got me in his hands. But you know, as a Christian, as we read this, we understand that the God who uniquely conceived of us, he not only created us, but he also chose us and called us to himself. Notice David says the days that were ordained for me. As Christians, let me remind you that that your lives have been planned and ordained in a very precious way by God. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Praise be to God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul told young Timothy as he was undergoing suffering, he said, join with me in suffering. Remember, God saved us, Timothy. And then he said in 2 Timothy 1.9, God called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Ready for this? This purpose and grace was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So God conceived of us in his mind what we would look like, how long we would live, but then in a point in time as a child of God, he brought you to himself. He predestined you. And he called us through the gospel. And because he called you through the gospel, he will keep you. He will keep you. Those whom he has predestined, he called. Those whom he has called, he justified. And those whom he has justified, he glorified. Notice how David brings out this precious truth in verse 17 and 18. As he thought about God's special care for him, he said, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And then he thought to himself, even while I'm sleeping, God, you're thinking about me. When I wake up, I am still with you. You know, it's interesting. It's fun to, to, to see young people in love and, and to, to watch them as they get engaged and, and sort of to see the interaction. The last thing on their mind that night is they're texting one another. Oh, I love you. They're, they're, they're FaceTiming. You hang up. You hang up. 
Oh, the first thing in the morning, they're texting. Oh, did you think of me? I thought of you. I thought of you. I thought of you. Sometimes it gets to be a little much. I'll walk by and I'll see someone say, you hang up. No, you hang up. And I grab the phone and I go, here, I'll hang up. But in general, we understand how beautiful it is to know that someone's thinking about us. But look what this verse is teaching us. This verse is teaching us that we are always on God's heart. And I'd like to suggest as we read this through the lens of the gospel, he's not just thinking neutrally about us. When David says, how precious are your thoughts to me, not only is God constantly thinking about you, but he's praying for you. He keeps us on his heart and in his prayers. The Bible says Jesus is at the right hand of God and he's, he's not just thinking about me, but he's praying for me. And he's keeping me. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, This is the will of God, that all those whom he has given to me, I will lose none of them. When Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer, he said, Father, while I was with them, I was keeping your children in your name. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished. Jesus said in John 18, 9, Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one of them. And so what a wonderful thing to think that Jesus is keeping us by his precious prayers for us. He's bought us with his precious blood and we're in his hands. Maybe you're struggling right now. Maybe you're thinking about, I can't do this. I can't stay married to this person. I can't keep, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to give up. God, what are you doing? Oh no, maybe I'm going to lose my salvation. Relax. Jesus said to Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan asked permission to sift you like wheat. But Jesus said, I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. So when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. I couldn't help but think wonderful songs like Victory in Jesus, My Savior Forever, the wonderful song that Benjamin has us singing, he will hold me fast. Or the great line from Amazing Grace, the Lord, or, or, um, the Lord has promised good to us. His word, my hope, secures. But the last thing I want us to see in verses 19 through 24 is that the God who searches us is also the God who sanctifies us. What a wonderful thing to be a Christian. You see, as a Christian, it's like God takes your heart and he gives you a new hard drive. When we become believers, the Bible says that, that our old, uncircumcised, dead, sinful heart of stone is taken away and he gives us a heart of flesh. And he puts his spirit within me and he causes me to walk in his commandments. The Bible says in Philippians 2, he works in me to will and to work for his good pleasure. Those of you that are considering Christianity and you're thinking to yourself, what? Not, not going out and sinning and going to church and reading the Bible? That sounds boring. Yeah, it, it, it sounds boring, but it's not boring when God changes your heart. When God awakens you, he stirs within us a holy desire to become like him. It's a beautiful thing. It's a work of his grace to be a believer and to be in the process of sanctification. 
The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, God himself will sanctify us entirely in our body, soul, and spirit. And so as a Christian, as we close this psalm, I want you to think about this. If the spirit of God has changed your heart, then your attitude towards sin should no longer be something that you enjoy and indulge. But as Christians, sin is something now that we endure and we fight against. And though we struggle and though we stumble, sin is no longer our go-to. And we're in the process of being freed from that. Romans chapter 6 says, I have been crucified so that my old man is, is dead and, and, and my body, which was controlled by sin, has been made powerless so that I'm no longer a slave of sin. So Paul invites us in, in Romans 6 then to now be enslaved by God and, and to begin to see the fruit of sanctification. Look how David's sanctification was working out as he thought about the God who searched him and called him and loved him and created him. And then he thought about the people that he knew who were evil, wicked, hard-hearted. As he went through life and he heard people cursing God and doing horrible things, look at his response in verse 19. He said, Oh God, that you would slay the wicked. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. You see, as we begin to love God as he changes our heart, and we begin to see the world the way that he sees the world, we begin to understand that the world is in rebellion against him, and that God is angry with the wicked every day, and he longs for them to repent. And he sent his son to save sinners. But there will come a day when those who stubbornly refuse to submit to God will perish. David said, depart from me, men of bloodshed, for they speak against God wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Now we come to a difficult verse. Look at verse 21. Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred, they have become my enemies. There's this mysterious tension in Scripture in which we are told to love our enemies. We are told to pray for those who persecute us. We are told to forgive and have compassion towards those who don't know God. And yet at the same time, as we grow in grace, we understand that there's a holy vindication that there will come a time when God will bring forth his vengeance. The book of Revelation actually tells of a time when the saints in heaven will say, Hallelujah, for the Lord God has begun to avenge the blood of his saints. And so this verse is not teaching us to hate unbelievers. But the Bible clearly tells us to hate evil. And that's something that we need to think about. That as we watch TV, as we mock and laugh, the book of Proverbs says fools make a mock of sin. And we don't want to allow ourselves to become insensitive and to say things like, hey, except for the nudity and blasphemy and cursing and violence, that was a really good movie. 
But David began this psalm by telling us that God searches us. The God who searches us knows us. The God who searches us is with us. The God who searches us uniquely conceives us. The God who searches us is a God who ultimately keeps us and sanctifies us. But notice David's closing prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Isn't that interesting? That even though God always searches us, David teaches us to ask God to show us what he finds. Lord, share with me what you find as you search me. As we close this morning, today I want to invite you to ask God, search me, O Lord, and know me. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. What are you worried about today? Are you, are you failing to trust God? I struggle. I don't always trust God. Not only ask him to, to, to know your anxious thoughts, but to know your evil thoughts, to expose those thoughts and intentions of our heart that are, that are, that are wrong, to expose to us our idols, to, to show us those areas where we're being foolish, where we're trying to find our happiness from a person or from a job or from money or from power. Search me, O oh God. Show me my foolish thoughts, my anxious thoughts, my evil thoughts, my wandering, lustful thoughts. Lord, show me. And then he says, and Lord, see if there be any harmful or hurtful way in me. And then... Lord, lead me in the everlasting way. As we close this morning, I hope you'll be encouraged by the God who searches us. But I want us to pray this morning that God who searches us will show us not only what he sees, but where we need to change. What is it this morning that God is showing you about yourself that he wants to change? Have you lost your patience? Have you begun to fantasize of an affair? Have you begun to, to move away from God? Are you, are you disillusioned and disgruntled? Are you trusting him? Is there something in your life that, 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 that you've been allowing your conscience to be violated, this morning I want to ask you to, to truly turn back to God, to say, Lord, bring me back to yourself. Lord, lead me in paths of righteousness. Lead me to live for you. Maybe you've wandered from a prayer life. You've wandered from time with God. You haven't been in his word. This morning, the God who searches us is calling us to follow him. As we close in prayer, Benjamin's going to lead us in a wonderful song that, that truly brings out the heart and soul of, of this precious psalm. Years ago, many, many years ago, some 30 years ago, I memorized this psalm as a, as a young Christian, and it's been a blessing to me. And I want to encourage you, maybe that this would be a psalm that you could begin to memorize and pick some of these verses and ask God to transform you into the image of Christ. We're going to sing together before the throne of God above. 
And as we sing that song, remember that God is always with you and he's bought you in the blood of Christ. The song says, my name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. One day we're going to be with Jesus. But until then, let's be faithful to God. Let's praise our God. And let's share the good news of Christ with all who listen. And if you're joining us this morning and you're still considering becoming a Christian, may I challenge you this morning to recognize this. God knows all about you. He knows your sin. He knows that you have failed him. But he still loves you. And he'll pardon you for all of your sin. But you have to come to him. Maybe you were told you have to be good. You can't be good. No one is good. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Maybe you you haven't understood grace. Maybe you thought somehow that, that you had to do penance. But the gospel is a free and full offer of forgiveness through Christ. Jesus shed his blood on the cross for you. He died and said, it is finished. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. But because he shed his blood and he died instead of us, you can be forgiven this morning. You can have a fresh start. You can become a child of God. The Bible says if anyone comes to Christ and is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things are gone. If that's your desire this morning, I want to invite you right there as you're watching this to say, Lord Jesus, I hear you. I believe you. You've searched me. And now I hear your calling and I come to you the best I know how. I trust that you died for my sins and rose again and I'm ready and willing to follow you. Please forgive me and from this day forth, help me to walk in a new life and help me to connect with brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that the God who searches us is the God who gave his only son. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for our salvation. As we go through this coronavirus, Lord, may we trust you. You have not forgotten us. May you heal our country. May you revive the Christian church. May you waken us from our slumber. May you cause us to reach out in love to one another. Encourage us today, O Lord, and may your word lift us up. May we hear good news of people who have come to the knowledge of salvation. And we ask all of this for the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've become a Christian or you have questions, feel free to email me at tallen at cairn, C-A-I-R-N dot E-D-U. I'd love to hear from you. Try to answer any of your questions and point you to Jesus. God bless you.